Our Bible reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. There was a young couple about to go on their dream holiday. They'd planned it for ages. They'd saved up and they were really looking forward to it. And they got ready, they went to the airport and they were in the endless queues that you have to face to check in. When the husband said to his wife, I wish we'd brought the piano. The wife said, why? We've got 16 bags already. What on earth would we do with a piano? And the husband said, Yes, I know, but the tickets are on the piano. (laughs) You see, sometimes we forget the most important thing, don't we? According to recent research, there are things that people most often forget. 83% people forget names. 60% of people forget where something is, usually keys. 57% usually forget telephone numbers. 53% forget words. 49% forget what was said, and 42, forget faces. And if you can't remember if you've just done something, you join 38% of the population who are in the same boat. But there are some things we simply shouldn't forget, things like birthdays, anniversaries, that kind of thing. But sometimes we do, don't we? Sometimes we forget the important things. Sometimes we so get stuck into everything else the things that don't actually matter that much, that we forget the things that do. We forget what's important. And what I'm on about when I'm saying that is we forget what God has done for us. So often we forget the ways in which he's led us and guided us and provided for us and protected us through the years. Sometimes we even forget the very basic things about him, or at least we act like we do. I wonder if we're in danger of doing that, because that's how we find the people of God in Isaiah 1. They've forgotten God and all he'd done for them. They've forgotten how he'd led them for years and provided for their needs. They forgot to put him as most important in their lives. And we can sometimes do the same. You see, Isaiah was a prophet who came on the scene at the end of a long line of kings and rulers who didn't have the best reputations. They didn't always do what was best for God's people. They'd got questionable motives and 
They just didn't do what was right all the time. And right at the start of Isaiah, God is bringing charges to his people about what they have and more to the point what they haven't done. He'd seen them act mercilessly towards people. They'd been greedy for centuries. And it seems that after hundreds of years, God's patience seemed to be wearing thin. He even compares them to the cities that he'd obliterated, like Sodom and Gomorrah. And in this particular passage, it's difficult to find hope for God's relationship with them. His people being put right, it's it's hard to see how that can happen. So with this relationship between God and his people being as strained as it is, it seems almost as though it's beyond hope. God is fed up and he's angered by their religious acts. Because whilst they do all the right things, as in they meet together and worship, there's something not right about how they do it. And the message version of Isaiah 1, um, a few verses between 2 and 10 say, Heaven and earth, you're the jury. Jury, Listen to God's case. I had children and raised them well, and they turned on me. The ox knows who's boss. The mule knows the hand that feeds him, but not Israel. My people don't know up from down. Shame. Misguided God dropouts, staggering under their guilt baggage. Gang of miscreants, band of vandals. My people have walked out on me, their God. Turned their backs on the holy of Israel. Walked off and never looked back. And then verse 10 says, listen to my message, you Sodom school leaders, receive God's revelation, you Gomorrah schooled people. It seems like he's not very happy with them at all. So what causes God to say all of that to his people? Well, I suppose to be able to answer that, we need to think a little bit more about who God is. And in particular, how he defines himself in verse 17, which says, learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. God is a God who gives hope to the hopeless, who gives a voice to the voiceless, who defends the defenceless. He opposes injustice of any kind. He's not about selfish gain and he doesn't show preference to one group of people over another. And so when his people are praising him and claiming to love him, but at the same time they're behaving in opposition to him and doing things that he doesn't like, then it's not going to be acceptable. They come to worship, yes, of course they do, but it's what they do the rest of the time that's the problem. Their worship had become a bit of a ritual instead of something that's the whole of their life. And that can sound a bit familiar, can't it, to us? So often we box up our worship into church on a Sunday morning. Worship isn't about that. We forget the rest of the week belongs to God too. It's not just about what we do here. It's not just about what we do when we're in this building or we're around other Christians. But it's about what we do with the whole of our lives, the whole of our front lines. It's about making sure we're fruitful in every area of our lives And that worship to God should be the central motivation for all that we do. And here God's people are being hypocritical. They come to worship, of course they do, but they do all sorts of evil at the same time. They let people get away with oppressing other people. 
They don't bring justice to the orphan or plead the case for the widow. There are parts of Isaiah where we read them taking bribes from rich people, from taking land from the poor and needy, and they abuse women and children too. So when they come to worship after doing all this sort of stuff, God isn't happy. And after years and years of enduring this kind of behaviour from his people, God tells them that enough is enough. It's like he's saying, I made you. I made you to love what I love. I made you to hate what I hate. I made you to work towards what I want to work towards. But you love what I hate and you don't work towards what I work towards. You work towards the wrong things. You don't act like you're my people. I wonder if sometimes on a lesser scale we can be in danger of doing that too. But to Israel he says, I'll let you taste what it's like to not be mine if you carry on. But he wants us, he wants them to be the people that he created them to be. And we need to be people who are concerned for the weak and for the vulnerable. We need to be people who do what we're asked in verse 17, which is learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. But what does he mean exactly when he says seek justice? Well, when we think of justice, we tend to think in terms of punishing wrongdoing, and of course that is part of it. But there's another side of justice too, and it's really important. Justice, the, the justice bringing about right to people who are doing wrong, that's, that's really up there in importance. But it's not how the Bible uses the word in this case. It's associated with the cause of the whole person, not just to protect them in the case of right and wrongs, but also about doing good for them. Justice in this instance is about actively pleading the case for the oppressed. It's about meeting the needs of others and giving generously. We may think in terms of charity, but this that gives us the sense that it's optional, whereas this really isn't. If we're Christians, then we're supposed to behave justly. We're supposed to, if we're supposed to behave justly, then we must make an effort to use our time and our talents and our resources generously in order to care for those who can't care for themselves. The people of God in this situation were not doing that. They weren't seeking justice in this sense of the word. They weren't looking out for their neighbours. And as it turns out, they were actually oppressing each other. So we might expect that God would tell them that that's it, too many chances, enough is enough. They're not being the people he wants them to be. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives them clear instructions about how to put things right. In Isaiah's time, the church and the government were entirely linked together, whereas now that's not necessarily the case. But we're still very much responsible to plead the case for the marginalised, to help the downtrodden and to stand up for those who are victimised. We don't need some big project in order to do that. We need to start where we are. That's on our front lines. That's the people we meet every day and the things we do every day. It's the situations that we come across where things just aren't quite right or where we see people in need and we can do something about it. The situations where we have the opportunity to make a difference. And you know, sometimes, if we're honest, we can look at situations and think, well, that situation, it's a little bit self-inflicted. It's because of their own doing. 
And it might just be easier to wash our hands of tough situations that we come across. But we need to not do that. We need to think as God thinks. God is kind to those who don't deserve kindness. And we need to be the same. And there are people throughout history who have changed the course of history. They've changed situations around them. They've recognised a situation of need or difficulty and they've done something about it. And most of these people never set out to be noticed. They just did what they could with the situations that they faced. Martin Luther once said, We should live as Christ died yesterday, rose this morning and is coming back tomorrow. When we do that, we do our best in every situation that we come across. The problem is, however, that the church doesn't really do that. We don't really recognise Jesus as just having died for us on the cross and risen again. We, if we did that, we'd be a little bit more proactive, a little bit more excited, and we'd do a lot more to help other people. We might just go about things a little bit differently. But sometimes we're in danger of acting like people who don't know that God, Jesus is risen and who don't act like he's going to come again. People who don't know what we're meant to do. Like there's something stopping us from putting what we've learned into action. People who are too scared to take the instruction of seeking justice all that seriously. But think about it, the disciples would never have accomplished what they did in the early church without knowing that Jesus was risen. Those same disciples, knowing the difference that a risen Jesus makes, well that's another story. Without them, we wouldn't be here reading this Bible. None of it would exist. Those disciples could easily have been overwhelmed by the odds of the situation they were in. Twelve men against the world. But they didn't. They knew that Jesus makes all the difference. And they realised that if they didn't step up and take responsibility, then no one else would. They took personal responsibility. John Stott put it this way. He said, if the house is dark when nightfall comes, there's no sense in blaming the house. That's what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where is the light? Similarly, if the meat goes bad and becomes inedible, there's no sense in blaming the meat. This is what happens when bacteria are left alone to breed. The question to ask is, where is the salt? Just so, if society deteriorates, and its standards decline until it becomes a dark night or a stinking fish. There's no sense in blaming society. This is what happens when fallen men and women are left to themselves and human selfishness is left unchecked. The question to ask is where is the church? Why are the salt and light of Jesus Christ not permeating and changing our society? It's sheer hypocrisy on our part to raise our eyebrows, shrug our shoulders, or wring our hands. The Lord Jesus told us to be the the world's salt and light. If therefore darkness and rottenness abound, it's largely our fault, and we must accept the blame. That's a little bit harsh, isn't it? There are loads of people who don't actually want anything to do with God, who can reach out to the poor and needy better than we do. If all God wanted for us to sh- was to show generosity to those in need, we could do that. But he calls us to have a broader vision. And that broader vision 
is giving out of what we received. It's about recognising everything God has done for us and because of that, responding to a world in need. We've experienced the grace that God gives and so we should do our very best in seeking justice, taking care of the oppressed, looking after the needy. And we can do that because we know what we first received from God in the first place. And it's about taking personal responsibility. It's not someone else's job to do do these things. It's ours. We can't assume someone else is going to deal with it. We can't leave it to everyone else. Augustine wrote this thousands of years ago. He said, That bread which you keep belongs to the hungry. That coat which you preserve in your wardrobe to the naked. Those shoes which are rotting in your possession to the shoeless. The gold that you've hidden in the ground to the needy. Wherefore, as often as you're able to help others and refuse, so often did you, you did them wrong. It's not society's fault that you fill in the blank. It's ours. And we need to recognise that. And then when we do... That changes things. When the church starts taking responsibility for things that can easily be blamed on others, then we can make the most of the difference on our front lines, both individually and as a church. And the thing to remember is that we were once defenceless too. We too needed and still need Jesus to be our voice, to be the one who stands in our place. There's injustice and and poverty in the world because We rebelled against God. We separated ourselves from the one who defends us from physical harm and spiritual harm. We find ourselves motivated by greed or fear or just apathy. And thankfully, God doesn't abandon us, just like he didn't abandon his people in Isaiah. Throughout the book of Isaiah, God speaks of a future time hinted at in this passage, a time when all things will be put right. And we will love what God loves. We'll hate what God hates and we'll work towards what God works towards. And we'll live in peace. But until that happens, we need someone to speak on our behalf. We need someone to intervene and shape us to be the people who God wants us to be. And to see the world God the way God does. To make us into people who defend the defenceless. Who, because we were first defended. People who seek justice because we've been treated with such grace. And Jesus stands between us and the end we deserve, because as people who've rebelled against God, we don't deserve the future that we have. We've been cared for, and we shall be cared for by God because of Christ. We can now come before God to worship without fear, because in Christ we're defended, we have an advocate, we're washed clean. And because of that, we should be eager to seek justice, to defend the defenceless and to work for the better treatment of those around us. So let's not forget our purpose like the people of Israel did. Let's obey his command to learn to do right, to seek justice, to defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless and to plead the case of the widow. God doesn't want our ritual worship He wants us to back it up with our actions. He doesn't want the best of us on a Sunday morning. He wants the best of us all of the time. He wants our hearts in everything we do. And when we are really truly aware of what God has first given us, then 
we can all the more offer, easily offer our hearts to him and serve him in seeking justice that we're commanded to do. Leighton Ford, in his book, Good News is for Sharing, said, For God so loved the world, not just a few, the wise, the great, the noble and the true, or those of favour class or rank or hue, God loved the world, do you. Let's pray together.